0: Can we be sure of heaven? Not can we be smug about it, not can we be complacent about heaven, but properly assured as our Heavenly Father intended that his children should be as they face the future. And the answer is here, read already by Charlie in this great burst of praise with which the Apostle Peter Begins his first epistle. Let me read it again. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Slightly a different version that I'm reading, but of course exactly the same truth and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. If I were from this magnificent sentence to pick out a title or a theme for this morning, it would be there in about the third or fourth line of verse 3, a living hope. That's our theme. My father died when I was 20. At the time, I was doing naval service far away in the Mediterranean. He and I had a very close relationship, so it is a great grief to me. Indeed, we were a very close-knit family. And, as it happens, a church-going one. We went to a church with the strange name of St. John's Subcastro Lewis, I have since gathered that Sue McGowan's parents go there now. As regards a clear message of the gospel and Bible teaching, the history of St. John Sub Castro Lewis is very much up and down and largely down, though I gather things have become better. In consequence, my parents were untaught and unhelped. There was not even a crumb from the bread of life. Though despite all this, my father very much was a praying man. When ultimately I came home, naturally I visited our family grave. I looked at the beautiful stone that had been chosen by my mother and the inscription that she'd placed on it. Two words, in hope. I suppose the question is, as I look back, what kind of a hope was this? I think, in fact, and I'm sure, that at that stage in her life, it might have been called a longing hope rather than a living hope, a timid hope, a modest hope because she was a modest woman, a yearning hope. And because it was not a living hope for her then, it gave her very little comfort. We live in a completely different world today, I don't want to exaggerate, but it almost seems that apart from a few sad humanists and a band of aggressive atheists, everybody now expects to go to heaven. A hope I think we're bound to call a presumptuous hope, certainly not a longing hope or a living one. It's been on my mind these past two or three weeks. You can't help seeing it. In fact, I've noticed it in the newspapers almost every day in the last fortnight. And lest this should be just my imagination, I went out yesterday morning and bought a copy of the Daily Mail. And there it was in Belle Mooney's column. She's a highly intelligent agony aunt. If you ever read the uh, Daily Mail on Saturday, perhaps you don't need an agony aunt. But if you do, she's the one to turn to. And there it was again. So that the veriest unbeliever today, maybe a so-called celebrity, will tell the children that grandma and grandpa have been reunited and are both angels in the sky looking down to watch over you. Now I would not be unfeeling. It's a very natural way, isn't it, of escaping the painful realities of death and loss that Richard was reading about and praying about just now. But nevertheless, it's not faith, it's fantasy. The cause of such wishful thinking, such unwarranted hope well, those causes, I think, are obvious to you and to me. Over the past three generations, the failure of the respectable church to warn anything, anybody about anything in the future. It hasn't spoken really about the great promises and not about the great warnings either. So nobody knows. Secondly, the ignorance of the natural man and woman of the desperate depravity of our hearts. That inborn hostility to God and the gospel. We're ignorant of that because we've not heard the word of God and the spirit has not searched our hearts. And then, of course, there are unopened Bibles. We're fortunate to have Bibles in this church, but I sometimes preach in churches where there aren't even Bibles, and certainly out in the world, no fear of God. So it is disconcerting, isn't it? And I think it's really distressing that today's generation is able to ignore God, by and large, and even to treat his son with easy contempt, and yet still to be confident of grandma and grandpa looking down on us. The only word that is being believed then is not the word of God, but the word of that old Satan long ago, who said to our forebears, you will not surely die. Well, let's leave such empty hopes and get our feet on solid ground. As the young say, let's get real. And the only way to do that, of course, is to stop imagining things in our own heads and listen to the apostle of Christ intently. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's turn to our Bibles. I hope yours is still open at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And first, I would draw your attention in our text to the emergence of a living hope. How it actually comes into your life. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth to a living hope. Now you'll see if you look closely at this text that it's very personal and individual. He mentions the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead there in line four or five, And that means, of course, that death has been conquered and that Christ has revealed that victory by rising on the third day. But the great question is, how do I know that I can share in that great victory? All right for him, what about me? How can I rise from the grave? How can I have a living hope of the future? And you'll see that very clearly the reason in verse 3. It's through the gift of the new birth. Now I think you'll know that the New Testament is full of wonderful words and phrases and synonyms of the new birth. Regeneration. Renewal. Baptism with the Spirit. Passing from death to life, being risen with Christ, having the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead living in you, and not forgetting, of course, verses 1 and 2, the wonderful news of God's election, the sanctifying work of the spirit, obedience to Christ, and the sprinkling of his precious blood. I think very often in our evangelistic work, one of the Gospels that we give to people is the Gospel of John. And I think I need not tell you, if you're a regular here, that right at the start of John's Gospel, chapter 3, there's an almost shocking account of a conversation between Jesus and a man called Nicodemus. Nicodemus, in case you don't know, was that leading man of Judaism, a distinguished teacher of theology, I think a man of real integrity and sincerity who was searching, a spiritual mentor to his people in Judaism, coming to talk of Jesus at night for fear of what others would think, and suddenly, meeting immediately from Jesus, those blunt words, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And to Nicodemus's bewilderment and astonishment, as you remember, as he tries to come to terms with this, it's repeated. And you know it is shocking. I've been living with this in this past two or three weeks, and it shocked me again. How many people in public life, how many acquaintances you work with are born again? Have any knowledge of it? How many people in our country suppose supposed to be the beneficiary of a Christian culture? How many know that flesh and blood, however cultured, however well-born, however admired, however religious, however well thought of, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? It's a shocking statement, isn't it? Man and woman at their best, barred from paradise. Now this great change of heart, done and worked by God's Holy Spirit, is not merely a moral reformation. You know that. The language of the New Testament is quite extraordinary. It says that when we become a Christian, when we're in Christ, we're a new creation. Uh, when a man is in Christ, says Paul, and it tumbles out of his, out of his, out of his mouth into his writing, new creation. The implication, very plain, isn't it, that the old creation, even at its very best—and it can be very wonderful—human nature, human culture, human achievement, human lives, they can be very remarkable, but the old creation, nevertheless, unfit, doomed to perish. You know, if I was, if I was. Uh, First reading that New Testament, I would think they got it the wrong way around. In chapter 4, you remember Jesus talks to that very unfit Samaritan woman who'd been through five men already. You might expect Jesus to say to her, woman, you've got to be born again. But he says it to this very distinguished, decent, upright man. Except man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, my friends, a new creative work of God in the human soul cannot be hidden from us individually or from those who nurse at home and wider. What a difference. There'll be new appetites, of course, like chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes desire the milk of the word. There'll be new concerns for family and friends that they also share in this joy. There'll be new habits of prayer, worship. There'll be new friendships, What wonderful friendships we have, don't we, in the Christian life. I'm lucky enough tomorrow and on Tuesday to be traveling out of London to see very old friends. And the depth of that friendship is largely explained because of our mutual love for Christ. New understanding. Once I was blind, but now I see. New sensitive loathing of sins and evil that so easily beset us, or at least easily beset me. New ambitions for your life. And certainly a new diary. In fact, the trouble with us Christians is our diaries are often too full because there's so much work to be done today in the kingdom of God. And in addition to all those new things that I mentioned just now, a new and living hope, a new and living confidence, not a self confidence but a confidence that he who has begun in me a new work will continue that work forever, that he'll never give me up. He's faithful and he'll do it. That then is the emergence of a living hope. It's empty of all that wretched self-confidence in our morals, in our goodness, in our decency, but it's full of confidence in Christ, his cross and resurrection, and it's aware personally of that glorious truth The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Consider now, as we sit at the feet of the Apostle and turn back to this text, consider now the expectations of this hope. It's emerged in our lives. We're conscious of it. It's given us a wholly new outlook on what it means to be a Christian and a wholly new outlook on the future. Consider now then with me the expectations of this hope. This promised inheritance with the three superb adjectives. Theological students present, please note this and read your Greek New Testament because they're wonderfully alliterative. Cannot perish, cannot spoil, cannot fade. I've been intrigued uh, this last week or so to notice that when the New Testament, when the Apostles want to describe heaven, they can never say anything in positive terms, I presume, because it would be beyond us to understand the glories of paradise. There's no language for it that we've got. So all they can say is, not like this old world. It's not like a world that spoils. It's not like a world that perishes. It's not like a life that fades away. In very recent days, there has appeared on some church bookstalls some rather trenchant Christian writing to shake up our thinking on this matter. And notably, Dr. Tom Wright, surprised by Hope, one of his books recently out, I think. No, I think it's been out for some time. Now, those who know Bishop Wright's books will find, as usual, a great deal that dazzles. He has a brilliant mind and a wonderful way With him, That has blessed the churches in recent days, not least when he's written on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who are familiar with Bishop Wright's books and writing will also know and also discover a certain disturbing imbalance at times. In putting us all right, it seems as someone has said that the pendulum swings too far the other way. Well, I guess we're all in danger of doing that. We want to make a point we exaggerate to the point where it's unbalanced. Dr. Wright's point is that our Christian hope in the resurrection and the new heaven, uh, our Christian hope is in the resurrection uh, on the last day, the new heaven and the new earth, rather than going to heaven when I die. In short, what he is emphasizing is what we all believe or ought to believe when we say that marvelous creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Well, let's look at our text. Where's the ground for this? Peter most certainly underlines this future full salvation. Look at four verses. Verse 5. Shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. not after death in the last time. Verse 7. May be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That is at his return. Verse nine. You are receiving or obtaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is the ultimate goal. The resurrection of our bodies. A new world altogether. And most striking of all, I think, verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds, verse 13, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Not is to be given you at death, but is to be given you ahead of that great day. Peter emphasizes this again in 2 Peter. Theological students, please take note that though your tutors may tell you there are doubts about the authorship of 2 Peter, it is a letter that is in the canonical scriptures and is authoritative to the Christian church down the ages. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. Not very difficult to believe these days. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Very telling, isn't it? Because our world, as we know by now, is the home of unrighteousness. So there we learn from the Apostle that our future is far ahead when Christ returns and remakes the universe. But what about heaven when we die? Must we dismiss heaven above while believing in heaven ahead? What Paul called, what Peter, I'm sorry, What Peter himself calls in verse 4, an inheritance kept, laid up, in heaven for you now. Well, not according to that text. It's kept in heaven for us. And this is the truth, of course, that we meet frequently in the New Testament. Those marvelous words of the Lord Jesus to the penitent thief. Are there any greater words than this promise? To a wretched man, quite undeserving, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Not at some distant future. This is what I read recently, announcing the death of the wife of a very dear friend of mine. I thought it was beautifully put. Bridget, on 9th of February, passed peacefully into the presence of Christ. That's now, not in the future. So we believe, and her family believe, and I believe, that she is now at home with the Lord. So we might well put the New Testament teaching on heaven like this, that heaven is both above and ahead. And in both cases, the essential blessing of heaven is the presence of Christ in God's home. Now, because I felt on reading surprised by Hope that it was capable of confusing a great many Christian readers, I mentioned this to a friend of mine who is a world-renowned scholar, biblical scholar. Happens to be like uh, Dr. Wright, an Anglican bishop as well, but that's quite incidental. I sent an email to him, and I said I felt this book could confuse, and would he set me and everybody else straight? Uh, he sent me such an illuminating reply that I put copies on the back table over there, copies of his reply, and if you care to take one, please do. Uh, there'll be more next week if we run out. However, there will be those who hear this sermon uh, who are not in church with us this morning and therefore not able to collect copies, so I hope with them in mind that you will permit me to read part of my friend's reply. I realize it's rather difficult to listen to somebody reading out a, in a sense a theological reply, but I think it's so fascinating that you would be wise to listen to it, even though later on you can fill up the gaps by, by, by taking a copy of what he wrote. Talking about uh, the retiring Bishop of Durham's book, he says this, His views on hope are one-sided, with exclusive emphasis placed on the horizontal at the end of history. This he sees in rather political terms, justice, equity, etc., that I suspect betrays a leftist, idealist outlook. He denigrates the idea of heaven when you die as platonic and Greek rather than biblical and Hebraic, hence his interest in Revelation 21-24. The problem, though, is that Revelation also portrays the saints in heaven already saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain, 5.11. Revelation does not resolve the tension between what is ahead and what is above. There's no doubt that the Bible teaches an end of history salvation. For example, 1 Peter 1, verses 7, 9, and 13, where we've looked at those. But that the same epistle refers to Christ being raised to heaven, one twenty-one, and that God will exalt those who humble themselves beneath his mighty hand, 5.6. In other words, the Christian hope is both ahead and above, and the Bible moves freely between the two without contradiction. This also comes out in chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, where salvation is ready to be re- revealed at the last time, and the inheritance is kept in heaven for you. I wonder how much practical pastoral experience the author has had in comforting the bereaved. Not a lot of hope for them, to be told it's all about something over the far distant horizon a long way ahead. It's certainly not what Jesus told the penitent thief, or what Paul told the Corinthians. We know that if the earthly tent we dwell in is destroyed, we have present tents, a building from God, eternal in the heavens, and that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, or what Paul told the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a wonderful truth that there will be a new Jerusalem where injustice and cruelty will be no more, as giving a vision for reformation within history, but not at the cost of robbing believers of the immediate hope they have in Christ at life's end. I think that's a brilliant answer. I shall treasure it. I hope you'll read it. Our expectations then, if we have a living hope, we are believers in Jesus Christ. This is what God has prepared for those who love him, is to be with Christ when we die in paradise and to be with God and all his redeemed people in the far distant future, in the new heavens and the new earth, as described in Revelation chapter 21. Those are my expectations, and I hope by God's grace they're yours. Third, and very briefly, since this is just outside our text, it comes in verses uh, 6 through to 9, what are the actual conditions like on the road that we travel to the New Jerusalem? Well, I could not tell you myself but I can point you to the authority here in verses six to nine and in this remarkable passage that I would love you to look and read read, read later on perhaps today, there's a unique New Testament paradox that we have to work out in our lives today but a paradox that is so realistic and so pastorally helpful that uh, we must come to terms with the fact that it seems self contradictory You see what he says, verse 6, there will be grief in all kinds of trials. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to have to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. And this, verse 7, permitted by our Heavenly Father, restrained by him, but used by him for his great purposes in making your life and mine that which on the last day he can praise. And at the same time, verses 8 and 9, there will be joy, great joy. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him like the apostle did, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of yourselves. It seems, doesn't it, almost impossible that those two can go together except that everyone knows in practice that they do. That life for a Christian, yes, can be full of testing, troubles, trials of many kinds. We shall encounter them even if we haven't already. But at the same time, we have that experience of Jesus that Peter insists, notice, insists is as intimate as his when he walked with the Lord. Verse 9 means that something of the future is being received in the present. By the way, I think I do prefer, I don't want to quibble, I am not a translator. I gather from the Wycliffe Bible translators it's a very skillful game. But in the ESV it says we have obtained the goal of our faith. Having obtained, it is actually a present participle. We haven't obtained the final goal. It would be wiser, therefore, to make it a present participle, as in the NIV, you are receiving the girl of your faith. Do you see the difference? Something of that glorious future is being received here and now. And I don't know whether this is true or not, but as I read of our persecuted brothers in all parts of the world, I think to myself that one of the reasons that many of them seem to have a greater joy than I do Is because they're going through greater trials. Can we be sure of heaven? Back to our question. Well, we whose trust is in Christ as Savior and Lord, yes, not by our goodness or our merit, but by God's grace and mercy and by the shedding of Christ's blood, we can praise our Heavenly Father as the Apostle does here in verse 3 and 4. We can be sure of the future could be of course that uh, someone listening to me today who is not yet a believer I very much hope that if you are listening to me you will not think this talk of heaven rather unpractical and nothing to do with you let me say to you as I close that the great questions are unavoidable in the end Gauguin that famous painter so living a miserable life. All his uh, years, he struggled with the three great questions. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? And he never found the answer. But the answer can be found in Christ, and I strongly advise you to use the time you have now to seek for those answers. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great mercy you made provision for sinful people like ourselves to be certain of our future. And like the Apostle, we praise you this morning for that. In Christ's name, amen.